Well, good afternoon. It is great to see you all. Um, some of you know that um, some of us are in marathon training at the moment. And uh, what could be more appropriate than the story of Jonah, the man who ran away? Um, I, I hope uh, this morning I did a long run. And uh, so I'm hoping my legs, which feel quite empty of fuel at the moment, are going to withstand uh, standing up to preach. I've said before, in, in olden times, rabbis used to sit and the congregation used to stand. And uh, we have it the other way around. You get the easy life. You can all sit down and I've got to stand up. Maybe we should swap that around sometime. But uh, hopefully my legs won't give way and um, we'll, we'll get through. Uh, you'll know that last week we started... Uh, the story of Jonah, we've entitled our series Chased by Grace. And uh, this is the story of how God called this prophet Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh in Assyria and preach to them, and how he very surprisingly runs in the opposite direction. And I think we saw last week, I hope we saw last week, how this surprising and in many ways ironic story is really a very vivid dramatization of the Christian gospel. And we saw that this is because, in many ways, the essence of sin is running, and the essence of grace is God chasing. And that's really what the book of Jonah is all about. A man runs, and God chases him. That is the Christian gospel. Many people, I think misunderstand the Bible. Lots of people think that the Bible is a book that helps us to climb up to God. And lots of people also think that churches exist to reinforce that idea by making people feel bad in order to coerce them into conforming. But this story of Jonah turns that all on its head and shows that the Bible is really all about how God comes after us, rebels and fugitives. In this story, the so-called good guy Jonah does almost nothing right, and yet God never gives up on him. This story shows us that while Jonah was running, God was chasing. While Jonah's sin takes him very far away from God, the grace of God goes further still, to catch him. One writer that I was reading as part of my preparation for this says this, I quote, this story shows that God is in the business of relentlessly pursuing rebels like us and get this, and that he comes after us not to angrily strip away our freedom but to affectionately strip away our slavery so that we might become truly free. Did you get that? This God is in the business of relentlessly pursuing rebels like us and that he comes after us not to angrily strip away our freedom, but to affectionately strip away our slavery so that we might become truly free. I think that quote's a nice lead into our thoughts this afternoon. Last week we were asking a question... Why did Jonah run? This week, I want us to think about a different question. How did God chase him? Quite simple, aren't we, in our church? Simple question. Why did Jonah run? How did God chase him? 
When we answer that question, how does God chase, the thing that is very striking about Jonah's story is that the very ship that he climbs aboard to escape God becomes the means that God uses to chase him down. Do you get that irony in the story? He thinks he's getting away from God by getting on a ship, but the ship is the very thing that God uses to chase him. And eventually we'll see that this ship becomes what one writer calls a little shrunken world. There's no Tarshish anymore, no Joppa, no Nineveh, no Israel, no land at all. All of that is out of reach seemingly forever. There's only this fragile ship carrying living human beings barely suspended over this gaping grey expanse of wet chaos and death. The very ship that he climbs aboard to get away from God is the very mechanism that God uses to chase him down. In other words, the ship that Jonah hoped would deliver freedom is the very vehicle that God uses to catch him and confront him. This little ship becomes amazingly like a little prison cell where he is, in a way, forced to do business with God. He never expected that. And neither would we if we didn't know the end of the story so well. It spoils it, doesn't it, that we know the end of the story. So I want to pick out three lessons for us as we dig a bit deeper in chapter 1 into this idea of how God chases. The first lesson is a spiritual lesson that works in Jonah's case, but I think it also holds me true more generally for us. So here's lesson number one. I want to suggest to you that running from God will always lead to slavery and not freedom. So now we've got two images to think about. We've been thinking about running and chasing. And now we've got this idea of slavery and freedom. Now here's the thing. I'm not sure I've ever come across anyone who has ever deliberately run into prison. Have you? I don't think... No, no one deliberately flies headlong into captivity. We tend to want things to work the opposite to that, don't we? If I'm enslaved or held captive or imprisoned in some way, the idea is that we want to break free and flee towards freedom. I think this is true in every area of life except one. Because spiritually, we as human beings get things back to front. Spiritually, we always think that we know best, don't we? And we always seem to get this the wrong way around. Think with me for a moment about the Garden of Eden and our first parents, Adam and Eve. The temptation that came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden went along these lines. God is trying to curtail your life. He is limiting you. He is not the loving father that you think he is. He does not have your best interests at heart. If you really want to be free, you need to strike out and express your independence, you need to grow up. Forget God, be free. 
I think that was the essence of the temptation that came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so they effectively ran, sincerely believing that they were running to gain freedom. They didn't think they were running into slavery. They thought they were escaping and that life would only get better. But tragically, it was a lie. When they ran, they found that far from being free, they had, in actual fact, become enslaved by the very dreams they were chasing. The things they wanted to master now mastered them. The control they longed for eluded them, and instead of being free, they were enslaved. I think, in a way, what happens to Jonah here is a brilliant picture of exactly this idea, isn't it? He runs. He isn't planning to run into slavery, but is he free? Not only is he trapped in the bowels of a ship in the middle of a storm, but he's angry and fearful and confused and anxious, I'm sure. One writer says that the reason he falls asleep isn't because he's complacent or comfortable, but because he's emotionally exhausted. This isn't the sleep of a man who is calmly resting. This is the exhausted sleep of a man who is disintegrating. The irony is that his running led him to board a ship with a ticket to freedom, which becomes the very place where God closes in on him. He thought he was running free. In actual fact, he was getting himself trapped. But in that very enslavement, God is graciously at work to set him free. He's trying to outrun God, and all the while, God is one step ahead of him and has him exactly where he wants him. Now, I've been thinking about how I might illustrate this. I'm not sure this is going to work. Uh, my, my illustrations sometimes are daft ones, and this, it, this does qualify as a daft one. Um, running from God can feel like reaching for the sky when in fact it is more like climbing into a box, closing the lid on ourselves. So I, I meant to ask if one of our kids had an action man, but my kids are growing up and we haven't got action man in our house anymore. So I asked Dawn, did we have any... I'm not blaming Dawn. She did the best she could with the tools she had. So, I haven't got an action man. I asked him first step. Because first steps, crest kids don't play with action man, do they? So, the best thing we could find was this lovely little model. So, this action man was meant to represent me. And I said to Dawn, do you think my hair would look good that colour? Scuff it up a bit? Okay. So here's me, and here's a box. It's a very simple illustration. <laughs> I don't know. We'll call him Ian, because that's my name. So here, here I am, enjoying freedom, breathing the fresh air. Well, mainly fresh air in this room. And one day, I decide to run away from God. See him? That's running. But that running towards freedom actually works in reverse. 
even though we think we're running for freedom, what we're actually doing is climbing inside of a great big box, closing the lid on ourselves, and even though we think we're free, we're actually enslaved. So here's the illustration. When I run from God, I may as well climb into a box. Here's the sad thing about humanity. I think we all spend our whole lives thinking that we're running free when in actual fact we're often just climbing into boxes and living in the dark. Whatever it is that we run to, that thing will always enslave us. That is the nature of sin. When you run, what you run to will become your God. It will master you. And you will not have the freedom you thought that that thing would deliver for you. We see this so often in all different kinds of things, don't we? When we run, we become enslaved. That's exactly what happened to Jonah. He thought he was free, but he wasn't free. Is it obvious to you now what's going on in the story? How does God chase down people like us? How does he do it? That's the question for today. How does God chase people down who think they're free, but are in actual fact enslaved? Is it obvious to you that what God does is he shakes the box? That's exactly what happens here in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah ran. He thought he had a ticket to freedom. He climbed into captivity. And what did God do? He shakes the box. He shakes the box. The reason I I tell it like that is because I want you to get this idea. God is not shaking Jonah's box because he hates him. This is not a punishment. One writer says this is not a punishment. It is what we might call an intervention. God is intervening in Jonah's life, not because he hates him, but because he loves him. He shakes him to save Jonah from himself. God is chasing him to set him free from the box that he's climbed into And he strips him and exposes him and takes him to the very brink of his worst fears, as we'll see, in order to do business with him. So many people know all about God, don't they? They have some conception of God in their heads. But here in Jonah's tale, he is getting to really know the living God in a personal way. Here Jonah is brought face to face by God himself with God. Here in this story, Jonah meets God deeply, profoundly, significantly, life-changingly. What he knew before as a prophet in his head is now burned into his very soul. Jonah runs thinking that he's free. God chases him in his captivity and shakes his box in order to really set him free. Lesson number two. 
Lesson number one, running from, running from God always leads to slavery, not freedom. Lesson number two, when God shakes the box, there's three little sub-points here. When God shakes the box, first of all, he calls in the power of nature. I'm not saying God will do this in, in all of our lives. This is a kind of paradigm. It's an example. In Jonah's case, when God shaked his box he calls in first of all the power of nature the storm is very central in this text but the text makes it very clear that this is no random storm look with me if you've got your finger in the page at verse 4 the end of verse 3 after paying the fare he went aboard sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up now these guys are sailors they're they're not stupid these are seafaring tough men but this is a big storm a violent storm the ship is threatening to come apart and the story leaves us in no doubt as to who is really in control it is the Lord God He is not like Star Wars, may the force be with you. This God is a personal, powerful God who intervenes in Jonah's life and calls in the powers of nature to do it. See how it escalates. Let's run through the story very quickly. The Lord sends this wind, the storm. Verse 5, the sailors, pagan Gentile sailors. We'll come back to them. They're terrified. They each cry out to their own God. They've all got a God. And they're all crying out to their gods. Oh, God, say, people do that, don't they? When they face extremity, first thing we do, oh, God, help me. They've maybe never prayed a prayer in their lives. But when they're faced with this storm, they're all crying out to God. God, if you're there, save us. It says that they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now, in the original Hebrew language that this is written on, written in, the same word is used that the writer uses for the Lord sending a great wind. So what it actually says is, the Lord threw a great wind on the sea. The sailors threw all their cargo into the sea. Who's going to win in that competition? They're throwing the cargo in the sea. God's trying to storm on the sea. Who's going to win? Jonah, the prophet of God, pagan Gentiles praying to their gods, Jonah's fast asleep in his cabin exhausted and the captain has to go down into the bowels of the ship and say how on earth are you asleep what are you doing sleeping it's not even a question it's a statement how can you sleep get up call on your God we're all praying what are you doing The sailors said to each other, they're still pagans at this point, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And God graciously intervenes. The lot falls on Jonah. I wish we could spend more time on that, but we can't. So we'll move on. So they then asked him, this is like a machine gun of question. (laughs) 
So look at um, verse 9. They asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? In the middle of a storm. (laughs) Questions. And Jonah answers, I think it's beginning to dawn on him that he's not free, but that God is chasing him. I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? What have you done? This is like that for them being tied to someone in a massive storm who's got a lightning conductor tied to their head, isn't it? It's like you're running from your God and we're all going to die. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher. It was already going to break the ship up. Now it's getting rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm? Pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. And instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder. There's at least three notches of intensity there. And it's almost like God is pursuing Jonah. You you might have thought, when he confessed his sin, I'm a Hebrew, I'm running away from God, or the storm will subside. He confesses his sin, the storm gets worse. He says to them, throw me in. And the men do their best to row back to land but they couldn't because the storm just gets bigger and wilder and then they end up praying Lord please don't let us die for taking this man's life don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you O Lord have done as you please they were calling out to their own pretend gods now they're praying to the living God Still escalates. God shakes the box. He calls in the power of nature. Uh, Secondly, next point, God also calls in the pagan sailors here against Jonah. So Jonah runs away from preaching to pagans. Don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to the dirty pagans and preach to them. Where does he end up? On a ship with a whole load of pagans. Do you think God's doing something significant? The very people he's trying to escape from now confront him directly. They're caught up in Jonah's storm. Jonah's the one running, but the storm clouds hanging over him also implicate them. This is not part of my main point, but there's a lesson here that when we run from God, it never just affects us. I wish we had more time to explore that, but suffice to say at this point that the end game here, amazingly, is that God uses the same storm that disciplines Jonah as the means to convert the pagan sailors to faith. So God's doing more than one thing here. It's beautiful how that dovetails. So this is humbling for Jonah to realise that his actions are endangering other people. We saw that also these pagan sailors rebuke him. Wake up. They're desperately praying to their little pretend gods. Jonah, who knows the living God, is fast asleep. Imagine unbelievers saying to you as a believer, wake up. What on earth are you thinking? We're all in trouble here. If your faith counts for anything, Jonah, at least use it to make a difference. 
can you be asleep at a time like this? It's, I, I wish we could spread another talk on that subject. The Christian people with a watching world, fast asleep, and the world going, wake up, will you? That's what happens to Jonah. How humbling is that? For this, this is a prophet of God, and pagans are asking him to wake up. I think also they condemn him in a way. I love the irony here that these pagan sailors are effectively pre-Christ, converted to worship the true and living God. Jonah says he worships God, but it's the sailors who show it. They are absolutely straightforward and honest. They struggle with the moral dilemma they're faced with. They show great courage and tenderness of feeling to Jonah. And they end up in verse 16 offering sacrifices to God and promising to follow him. The proud Hebrew and his rash resistance set against the pagan Gentiles who are more sensitive than he is to God's power and purposes. It's all very humbling, isn't it? So in this little prison cell of a boat in the middle of a storm, God calls in the powers of nature. He calls in the pagan sailors. And he also calls in, thirdly, the fish from the deep. Now, I was really disappointed that fish began with F because the other two began with P. So do you mind if we spell it with a PH? Because I think preachers like to have them all beginning with the same letter, don't they? So here's the fish from the deep. This is the part of the story that's so hard for us to get, so hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? I have no doubt that there is some kind of miracle going on here. The, the text is very straightforward it doesn't elaborate but the question for us is why does God do it this way if only God had done it a different way to fit with our 21st century westernized sensibilities did God not know that we would struggle with this he could have made it easier couldn't he why does this story unfold in this particular way there's many reasons why I believe this is a true story We'll come back to one of the most important ones in a little while, that Jesus talks about it as a true story, and he's the son of God and knows more than me. So if he thought it was true, that's very good evidence. But let let me answer this question this way. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of ancient people here and understand a little bit of what the sea represented to them. We can control many things. But none of us can control the sea. The sea was, and possibly still is in many ways, the the universal symbol of chaos and untamable power. Who can control the sea? What lies beneath it? What strange creatures are there in those murky depths? In our modern culture, sometimes we talk of the bogeyman, don't we? Bogeyman. For the ancients, they would have bogey fish. You, you know the bogey, the bogeyman, the mysterious kind of threat. These guys didn't scuba dive; they, they didn't know what was beneath the ocean that much. They would catch fish, but they didn't see films or pictures in National Geographic magazine. For them, the sea contains the ultimate bogey fish. This awesome, simmering expanse of water with who knows what lurking beneath. Even the Bible uses this kind of language. The mighty sea monsters like Leviathan, mentioned in Job 41. 
brooding, twisting, gliding through those unfathomable depths. God even says to Job, can you pull him in with a fish hook? If you lay a hand on him, you'll remember the struggle and never do it again. (laughs) That's what God says to Job. So Jonah here, imagine you're Jonah standing on the brink. God is chasing him, rebuking him, confronting him, shaking his box. And now he stands on a wooden plank, looking out into a storm. More than that, looking out into his worst fears. What on earth is going to happen to me now? Will I drown? Will I be devoured? Either way, the answer's the same, isn't it? He's going to be swallowed up. Here's what I want you to get. I I think one of the reasons that God sends a great sea creature here, not to kill him, which is what he would fear, but to save him. Does that strike you as incredible? He thought the ship represented freedom. It turned out to be a prison. Now he thinks he's going to be swallowed, but it leads to his salvation. This is the point. The very thing that he is most deeply afraid of, and all men in his culture, the very thing all men are afraid of is the very thing that God uses to save his life. What does that say to you? I'll tell you what it says. It says, the Lord, he is God, and he can use anything to save anyone. Listen, the sea is not God. The chaos is not God. The mysterious deep is not God. Even the fish is not God. Jonah, your own fears, mate, are not God. Your worst nightmares, Jonah, they don't ruffle me. I am the living God and I can even use what you fear the most. Your worst nightmare to save you. God could have done anything if we're honest, couldn't he? He could have made some sort of magic submarine. Jonah could have walked on water. Jesus did that. God could have given him gillyweed. You recognise the Harry Potter reference? And he would have grown some little fins and been able to swim. But what does God do? He sends a great fish, the very thing that his culture would have been terrified of is the very thing that God uses to save him. This is the point. God is utterly in control even of Jonah's worst fears. We call this the sovereignty of God. No one is God's boss. He is not surprised or backed into a corner. He's not having an off day. He can call on the weather. He can call on pagan Gentiles. He can call on a great fish. He can do whatever he needs to do in order to bring Jonah to his senses and set him free. Jonah runs. God uses his running to save him. He climbs into a box. God shakes the box to set him free. Jonah is a rebel and God pursues him like a lover. He is far away God chases him down. 
Can I ask you this afternoon, this is Jonah's story. We said last week it's Jonah's selfie. Is God shaking your box? Let me ask you, have you been running, thinking that you are running free? And yet now, in some strange way, you feel hemmed in. And you're wondering, what is going on in my life? Perhaps you've been running and God has been chasing you. Do you understand that even the things you fear the most are totally underneath this awesome God's control? Chapter 2 is a kind of commentary on all this because we get to hear Jonah's desperate prayers. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hailed me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, when you were shaking my box, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will make good. Why? Because salvation comes from you, Lord. Has God been shaking your box, chasing you, hemming you in? Well, maybe, maybe today's the day that you listen to him. He means you no harm. He isn't shaking your box to punish you. Perhaps maybe to bring you to realise that what you're running to will enslave you rather than liberate you. Now, there's a very important question that arises at this point, I think. And let me ask it quickly. Does this mean that God is wanting to crush and strip and swallow us all until we admit that we're running. The thing that really strikes me in this story is the reaction of the sailors. Did it strike you? I mean, these sailors end up worshipping the God who, as far as they know, has just killed his prophet for running away. I mean, we could, next time at the start, we come to worship God. Imagine that. Let's go to worship the God who's just killed his prophet running away. I, I'm not sure how popular a church like that would be. But these, these men, it says they greatly feared the Lord. I mean, they ended up fearing God as much as they'd feared the storm. 
They have had an encounter with the living God that makes their pretend gods look like an assortment of multicolored muppets. They now know that the Lord, he is God. Clearly God has a loving motive here. He's shaking the box to set Jonah free. But as one writer puts it, this is an intervention, not a punishment. But listen, does does all this fear mean that God is a distant, scary figure who is chasing us in order to break us? Is God distant? I think that's an important question. And while it's true that God can do whatever he he needs to do as he chases us in grace to set us free, there's so much more to the story than just Jonah. So let's move on very quickly as we close to lesson three. Lesson three is this, that the God, this living God we've been talking about, the God who is free, climbs into our box. The brilliance of this story lies in the fact that it so clearly points to Jesus. In the New Testament, some religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to give them a miracle to prove his authority. Very interesting. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. And in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, Jesus answers these religious leaders this way. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here now of all the places Jesus could have gone in the Old Testament he picks out Jonah this failing fugitive of a prophet and uses him as an example why? well we're told in verse 17 the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights Jesus is the greater Jonah who was not in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights but in a tomb. Jonah ran away from his enemies the wicked pagans. Jesus runs towards his enemies. And if God was intervening here in Jonah's life surely Jesus coming into the world is the greater intervention We call it the incarnation, don't we? God becoming human. The God who is really God really became a human being. This God who is the creator of all things is born as a baby and enters the human race. Is he distant? As Jonah was swallowed by his worst fears, so Jesus comes to be swallowed up Not by the sea, but by death itself, the greatest enemy that we have. Jesus comes to climb into our box to do battle with sin and evil and death, and he won. He died 
in our place and rose again. Listen, this illustration of the box here with our little friend Ian who climbed into the box. Jesus comes and climbs into the box and then the whole box is thrown into God's judgment. The whole box swallowed. Jesus confronting all of our worst fears, death, sin, guilt. And he's not plunged off a boat, but plunged into death itself. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And for sinful people who are running, what greater evidence could there be of God's love and grace? This is the Christian gospel. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for our sins and conquer death and bring eternal life. He is not distant. He's climbed into the very boxes that we climb into. And the whole box has been swallowed up. And in the same way that Jonah dies to save the other sailors, Jesus dies to save sinful people. God brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will give ourselves wholeheartedly and boldly to him. What have we learned about God? Well, he's certainly personal. He is certainly powerful. He is very patient. And he is also utterly persistent. I I want to urge you this afternoon as we've thought a bit more deeply about this chapter, don't hide from him. Learn to hide in him. Do you get that difference? Don't flee from him. Flee to him. True freedom is not found in running from God. It is found in submitting to his glorious grace. I want to close today with a great quote from a book by a man called Os Guinness. Um, And it will appear on the screen, or maybe it won't. I'll read it to you anyway. Maybe it will pop up. Listen, we cannot find God without God. We cannot reach God without God. We cannot satisfy God without God, which is another way of saying that all of our seeking will fall short unless God starts and finishes the search. The decisive part of our seeking is not our human ascent to God, but his descent to us. And without God's descent, there is no human ascent. And here's the quote I wanted you to get. The secret of the quest lies not in our brilliance, but in his grace. The secret of the quest lies not in our brilliance, but in his grace.